This is a Black Equity Premium sneak preview episode. If you want more content like this, head over to Patreon and become a Black Equity Premium Patreon. We invite you over to our exclusive community of dope content where we look at different business owners and investors and look at great opportunities for our community of investors to invest in. We thank you again for tuning in to this episode of the Black Equity Podcast, and we look forward to having you listen to many more episodes in the future. Now, without further ado, I'm DJ Motri of the Black Equity Network, and welcome to your Black Equity Premium Sneak Preview. Enjoy. Welcome to another great episode of the Black Equity Podcast. I'm definitely excited uh, about this conversation. Uh, we actually haven't had a lot of authors on the platform before. So this is, uh, this is I want to say it's a first, but it's very close to a first. Uh, on the line, we have L.D. Morrow. She is an author, comedian, and producer. Uh, L.D., tell us a little bit about yourself and your new book that you just released. All right. Well, first, thank you. And thanks to Black Equity for having me today and and speaking about my book and all our journeys. Uh, yeah, my book is called Think Like a Bartender Recipes for Life. And, you know, the quick, I guess, 30 second elevator pitch of the book was, you know, I was doing stand up comedy and and stand up comedy was so late night. And I started trying to find other outlets to communicate and to kind of expand on my brand. So I thought, how can I get paid to be myself? And I realized that a lot of the success I had in corporate America actually came from things I learned behind the bar when I was a, a bartender in undergrad. So I started to take notes, you know, whenever I was out or when I had a free moment. And I started to, you know, pull together all of these chapters and I started to just fill them in. And Think Like a Bartender is, is really a, it's a comedy book. It's a self-help book. Uh, it's a, a personal kind of diary about my life, and it talks about a lot of the lessons I learned from behind the bar and how it can parallel into your corporate career or into your regular life. So funny chapters, how uh, called you have to know when to cut people off. And I talk about how bartenders go through that process. And there's the same process in your life, those same triggers you look at when you have to cut someone out of your life. So it's a really kind of... Um, funny light take on some, you know, true to art topics in the hospitality industry. And then after every chapter, I have a funny recipe and an illustration. So, you know, to keep it light and keep the readers engaged. Okay. So you said something that stood out to me. I want to dive into that. You were trying to figure out how to uh, get paid to be yourself. Where did that idea come from? Did someone 
uh, give you that idea or did you already know that this is, this is something I want to manifest? Um, you know, it actually started about three years ago. I was at NBA All-Star Weekend. I think it was in LA and Lena Waithe actually had a, a panel. Uh, she was speaking on a panel and the topic of the panel was get paid to be yourself. How do you monetize who you are? And, and most successful people, I think, they tap into that. So, you know, as I said before, I was trying to get out of stand-up comedy and I thought, okay, well, what do I like to do? And I took out a piece of paper. I like to make people laugh. I enjoy cocktail. I enjoy being real. And I just looked at all those things and it turned into something that was a book. Initially, I was going to write like a LinkedIn article about like a bartender, something that could easily get posted on Medium or something like that. But I had so much content around it. Uh, so that was the concept of getting paid to be myself. The, the book is exactly me inside and out, exactly the way I wanted it and how I wanted to communicate it to the audience. So you, uh, you were a comedian, you were looking for another avenue. What was, how was the career as a comedian? Was it what you wanted it to be? What was kind of your experience in, in that realm? Yeah. Um, it was great. I guess I'll, I'll backtrack a bit. So I have a corporate job. I have a nine to five. Um, I've been a director at Showtime Networks for about 13 years now. So that's like the job, right? Gotcha. Um, media. Yeah, it's in media and content and distribution, all those fun things that I love. And comedy was just an outlet. People kept telling me, you're so funny. I know it's not coming across now, but I'm going to say something funny. <laughs> but people were like, oh, you're so funny. And so I went to a comedy school, Caroline's on Broadway, the comedy school, which people don't know. There's schools because you have to learn about delivery and timing and content as a science to it. So took that course and, and really learned the science of it. Started, you know, going out to comedy clubs, doing open mic nights and got a chance to perform at Caroline's on Broadway and Broadway Comedy Club and do a number of other things. But comedy is late night. I mean, you cut your teeth late night, they'll tell you, I got a spot for you. It's at 12.45 a.m. on a Tuesday, <laughs> you know? So mm -hmm. having a nine to five, it was a struggle for me to balance both. So while I was still working on my craft and writing material, the book was a better outlet of my time uh, because I could write a book on the bus, you know, thanks to the cloud, you could write it on the bus when you're home, you know, when you have a free moment. So it was a great outlet for me to, to put that comedy into. So you, you go off and you say, okay, well, I'm going to You start off as a, a potential LinkedIn uh, posting. It turns into a book. What did you find out during that process of uh, writing this book and putting the book together that you may not have known before as far as the business side of, of self-publishing or, or publishing a book? Um, well, prior to the business side, one thing that I realized is that I don't like to write. And, you know, that's a, a thing. Um, I, I was never much of a writer. I'm very clear and concise, you know, and uh, it was a struggle for me to continue to put content into this book. So I knew that about myself, but I really learned how to expand a thought and how to write more. You know, the, the book ended up being you know, a little under 200 pages, uh, but it was initially almost twice as big because when you write, you're just pouring everything into it. And then when you go into the editing process, you realize, you know what, I could take this out. This is misleading. This is going down a wrong path. So I learned that part about myself. Um, from the business perspective, I self-published this book and I wanted to self-publish it because I needed to own the creative control and the marketing control. So um, definitely a lot of money went into it. You know, I recorded the audiobook with my own voice in a studio. I mastered, mixed it, all the illustrations, the cover, uh, the distribution channels. I decided to do that for me because although you could shop it to a publisher and there's a handful of publishers who will pick up self-published books. Um, I really, I said, if this is going to be the last book I write, I at least want it to be, you know, my legacy and my, my identity. Um, a lot of things I had to learn in terms of um, the software audacity, how to mix video and audio and all of that. You know, but thanks to the internet, I mean, it's all out there for you. So um, 
on the business side, I learned a lot about the business and what you can control versus what publishers can get in terms of percentages. And on the personal side, just, you know, learning to, to embrace the art of writing. All right. So you said something, you kind of touched on why uh, you had to do this, but I want to dig a little deeper. You said I wanted to own, uh, or actually you said I had to own my own marketing and create and have my own uh, creative control. Uh, you talked about legacy of, of the reason why uh, you wanted to do that. Um, how did you know that you had to do that though? I mean, I understand the, the legacy part. Did you had, have you ever heard stories about people not having their own creative control? Where did that idea come from to, to think that way? Uh, you know, it really came from just my experience in the industry over the years. You know, I've worked for companies like uh, Pepsi and Philip Morris and Coors and, and Showtime. These are big companies and you witness a lot of partnerships that happen. Um, more so on the media side, people come in with these great movie ideas and great stories and they go to Sundance Film Festival and they have this great short. Somebody buys it and they tell you, oh, this is great. We're just going to switch this name real quick. And oh, okay. And, and actually that main character you had, we want to like swap them around and and you're kind of losing everything that you put into it. And not that that's a problem. You know, I think a lot of artists get their launching pad from, you know, having a conglomerate to, to purchase your idea and, and distribute it more broadly. But I had an option. You know, this wasn't my nine to five. This wasn't going to be my bread and butter. So for me, I knew I could take a calculated risk and invest in myself and just kind of learn the process and take the time that, that needed to be invested to make this book exactly the way I wanted it. I like that. I like, and what you just said about, um, you know, working with these bigger corporations, you see how partnerships can go, uh, go south. Um, what have you noticed working within these corporations is, is an ongoing issue when it comes to partnerships failing? Um, you know, it's more of an umbrella statement, but I think the larger a company is, um, the less likely they are to kind of look at the true investment of the little person or the small person. You know, now with, with content, I mean, there was a time if you had a, a show idea, the only place you could go was CBS, ABC, BET, HBO, Showtime. There were just these big companies that you had to sell your story to. But now you can have a story. Facebook may pick it up. It can go on YouTube. You can put it out there yourself with a web series. I think it's kind of broken that Fabergé egg of, of distribution. And it gives creators an opportunity to get that out there. And the more eyes, especially where we are right now in, in this country, people are clamoring for more things to watch, more things to do. So I think larger companies in the past really didn't take the little guy that seriously. But I think now when you start looking at episodics or short form content, it kind of adds another layer to uh, whatever your, your company's description is to have something fun like that. So, I mean, you know how normally in real estate, they say it's a buyer's market mm -hmm. or a market. Well, I think in, in content and distribution right now, it's the creator's market. You know, you have an idea you know, get it out there. It doesn't even have to be finished. You have a book idea, you know, protect yourself, but you can get it out there and have someone help you develop that idea. So, so for someone who's listening uh, to this episode and they may be thinking of becoming an author, how long was that process from you, for you from uh, thinking it and then actually seeing it in front of you? Um, you think give you a true answer it was about two years two okay. and a half years I think you know when you first have a thought and the inception of it I started telling people you know I have this idea I was thinking of this book and I would play with it. it's called think like a banker and I talk about the process of banking and in life you have withdrawals and deposits it was kind of <laughs> thing yeah a bit Think like a barber. Sometimes when you mess up in life, it'll grow back. You know, mm. it's funny stuff. But then yeah. 
I started telling myself, stop giving your ideas away. Just, just wait. And so when I started to write specifically for Think Like a Bartender, um, it was just, and I wrote maybe backwards. I started with chapter titles because I'm a marketer. So for me, it was about the, the creativity of the, the chapter. So I had creative names. You have to know when to cut people off. I had a chapter, Well versus Premium. I thought, okay, you have your well friends in life and you have your premium friends. So as I created these chapters, then I started to fill them in with um, history of, of bartending and the history of prohibition and how it relates to the business world. Because this book doesn't encourage or advocate excessive drinking. It's not even really about drinking. It's just about a process of thinking like someone, a bartender, a server, a hostess, a waitress or waiter, those in the hospitality industry who every day they're facing someone, they can't close the door to their office. They can't sit at their cube and hide from the world when they're having a bad day. So how do these people deal with customers who every single hour, it's someone different. And I think if we took a lot of those concepts and applied them to our, our business acumen and also into our personal lives, I think we all would be for the better. All right, you said something else that stood out to me. You said, uh -oh, what I said? <laughs> you said, stop giving, uh, stop giving my ideas away. Or you told yourself, stop giving your ideas away. Um, wh why do you think that was so important to realize um, as you were going through the process? W what about keeping ideas to yourself yeah. and, and, and putting, putting it towards your own project? What, what, what about that stands out to you? I think for me, I, I realized that I wasn't the best writer. I, this was my first book. I wasn't an author. And I've unfortunately seen friends who've had ideas um, and they, they're telling everyone because they want that feedback. But before you know it, you know, you can't really kind of copyright just a general idea if you're telling someone. I was like, there are authors out there who have written books and I can tell them the premise to think like a bartender and in 30 days they have the book. They, they, you know, so I thought, let me just be quiet. So it was a very um, internal um, process for me. So about a year and a half into it, no one read anything. No one read a chapter. Um, when the book was finally finished, I had a friend who is um, an author and he's a writer and a producer, and he was looking to start a literary coaching business. He said, you know, I've written about four books. And he said, I love the way you talk. I love your stand-up comedy. And I think your book would be funny. He'd never read it. He said, I would like to help you get it to production. So first thing I thought, okay, great. I'll send you my draft. He said, oh no, I'm not going to help you write the book. You're writing the book. I'm just going to help you, you know, maybe you should use this distributor versus that distributor. Maybe you should, you know, this is how you market it. So I think it was a very therapeutic process me not sharing chapters with people just writing so by the time I had a first full draft um, regardless of whatever constructive feedback I got it was me you know and I'm a little different I'm that type of person I love constructive feedback you know when you're at work and they give you that performance review and oh you've been great LD and you're that's 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 get to it you know, what, right. make me better like you know I like the tell me why I don't have your job type of question you know so um, I enjoy feedback. So I think that's something that the process really helped because you have to have thick skin. You know, I've looked at a lot of my reviews and while 98, 97%, 97% um, of my reviews have been really positive. You get one or two and they're real. I read it and I said, you know what, that's, that's true. And that will only make me better going forward. So. I appreciate that answer. Um, make me better. Uh, that's a great attitude to have. How do you think uh, your time as a bartender made you better? Uh, you know, there's just certain things that you learn in uh, the hospitality industry. You learn patience, uh, punctuality, you know, persistence because you're, you're selling and you're not even aware that these concepts are something that you will need in your corporate careers or in your personal lives, you know, as a bartender, you're, you're, you're listening to someone, they're walking in, they've had a horrible day. Maybe their, uh, their coworkers didn't finish a project. Maybe they just finished a 12 hour day. 
and they sit in front of you. <sighs> and then at that moment, you're like, how you doing? What can I get you? And at that moment, you have to listen to them because they're talking to you. The next time anyone goes to a bar and you talk to a bartender, watch how intently they're looking at your face and looking at your eyes because you have to be able to listen to hear what that person is saying with the DJ playing and plates and you know forks and knives clanking and people laughing. So the ability to focus and zone in, I learned as a bartender. Um, the ability to, to realize that every person is a new page. I'm taking that. Don't take that. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, every person is a new experience and you have to have that same energy with them. Hi, how are you doing? You know, they deserve it. They're spending their money. Um, and you also learn that your name is your brand as a bartender. Your, every drink that I place in front of someone, that's who I am to them at that moment. I could be the best looking, the most attractive person, funny, witty. But if that cocktail or whatever you order is not good, you're going to judge me. You're going to judge the establishment. You know, so I think most bartenders really hold true to their art form. And that's a process. And those are things that we should take into like the business world. You know, every email I send, I'll reread it about four or five, six times. If it's a long email, I'll save it in a draft. I'll wake up in the morning and reread it, you know, because once you hit send, it's out there. And I think I learned that from the hospitality industry. You know, when when you were saying that, I started thinking about, um, I think it was, I think it was Kobe Bryant where somebody was asking, why do you play so hard, you know, every game? And I think he was saying something to the effect of this may be this person's one time, you know, they may be bringing their children to the game. This may be their only game they ever see, you know? So I want to be at my best at all times because every game is an opportunity um, for people to view me the way I want them to view, you know, view the game and, and, and view, um, you know, all the time and effort I put into this. And so when you start taking games off or you don't play your hardest, you really could be impacting, you know, how somebody is viewing, you know, the amount of money and the time that they spent, you know, towards that. So as you were saying that every person is a new page, everybody, everybody's a new experience. I think that's important, especially in business, uh, to really value each and every single person that comes in front of you instead of being robotic about it. Yeah, you have to, you know, um, my first job out of grad school was with uh, Philip Morris. Now that's the big tobacco company. And the reason I chose them back in the day, I said, well, I want to be a great marketer and I want to be a great salesperson. I said, so if I want to really learn, I'm going to go for working for the biggest, baddest, most controversial company out there. And that was a choice I made. Because learning to sell a vice, um, something that is marketed to consumers who choose to use it, but then it's also marketed to status quo. Every, everything is a dual marketing. You know, one side of your mouth, the company is saying, you know, don't smoke. If you're under this age, smoking's bad for you. But on the other side, it's two for $10. So right. it's, that, it's, it's a dual message. And I, I was so fascinated with that, that my career, I strategically chose vices. I know that's weird, but so I went with tobacco. And then I left there and then I was with um, Moet Hennessy for a while and alcohol. After that, I was with Pepsi, soda. We had issues selling soda into schools and that started the little eight ounce can versus the 12 ounce can and soda companies started making water. Then I worked for Coors and that's a beer. So I actually enjoy uh, complicated marketing. And I think um, in the hospitality industry, when you're a salesperson, it's a complicated sale because sometimes you won't walk away with what we call the sale at that moment, but it's consultive selling. Sometimes I have lunch with clients to this day and I'll take them to lunch and I'm like, how are you doing? What's going on with your company? And we're done with lunch. I'll pay for it. And they said, Oh, did you, did you want to talk about any of your initiatives? I'm like, no, I just wanted to check in with you. Because that's important. If they know every time you're coming to them, you're, you're going to ask for something. And I think even in bartending, you know, some customers didn't want to drink. If they said, you know, I don't really drink alcohol. I just enjoy the DJ. I said, well, can I make you a, a really nice mocktail? 
you know, with some basil and, and this, that, and the other. Oh, yeah. So I didn't try to sell them towards what I'm supposed to, which is like the alcohol, which makes the most margin. But I did find a customer that appreciated that I listened to them. I gave them what they wanted. And then maybe if they told a friend about the place, which happened, they come, oh, yeah, my friend, she doesn't drink. But she said, you know, you were really nice, but I do. So can you make me a nice Manhattan? I'm like, absolutely. So and that's just the process that I learned in hospitality. And, and throughout all of those corporate careers, I just remembered every customer, every client as someone walking into the door, like sitting at my bar. I like that. Um, you mentioned all these different corporations you've, you've worked with. These are some big names. How did you get into this space as far as working with these major corporations? Was this always the goal? How did this come about for you? Wow. Uh, that's a good question. So it's a little interesting. So in high school, I went to an aviation high school. I'm from Texas. My accent comes out every now and again. So, I'm, I'm listening for it. All right, you know, over there. <laughs> uh, so I uh, I went to aviation high school where you, to graduate, you had to get your pilot's license. So I went to Sterling Aviation. I graduated, got certified to fly uh, like a twin engine, you know, like a private small plane. And at that time, I wanted to go to college to be an aeronautical engineer. So I graduated high school went to college with the Texas a and and majored in aeronautical engineering. And I'm like, ah, that's what I want to do. I want to be the first female to fly the SR-71 Blackbird. I had all this. And I sat in that first class and I was like, nope. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what this is about, but I don't want to do it. So I didn't, I was on a scholarship for engineers. I had to go to my counselor, like, I don't want to do this. And she said, what do you want to major? And I'm like, communication. So she almost fell out of her chair because you tell someone you want to switch from engineering to like a liberal art. Sometimes that's a big deal, but I'm glad I did that. Um, I changed my major to communication because I was a shy kid. And I thought, whoever I am on the inside, if I can effectively communicate, it doesn't matter what I do for a career. At least I know I can communicate effectively. So I changed to communication, um, was a teacher for a while. Uh, in undergrad. And when I transferred in grad school, I went to Texas Southern University, go Tigers, uh, HBCU. And I went to TSU, joined a phenomenal debate team, Sigma Pi Alpha. We traveled around the world. And you're talking about a group of predominantly African-American kids. Most of us have never been on planes. And here we are debating at Seton Hall, debating at Harvard, you know, and learning the voice that we had. And then I became, that was my passion. I found a voice. And so when I graduated college, I really didn't know. It didn't matter the company. I just wanted to enjoy what I was doing. So there were a lot of offers, not a lot, but I had a few offers. But the tobacco company, believe it or not, I went to it when others were like shying away from it because I thought I can learn a lot from them, even if I don't stay, you know, which I didn't. Um, but when you're in an industry like a vice, it's a small world. So if I started at Philip Morris, someone heard about me at Pepsi, then they called me or I have a friend that works there. So we were able to just kind of float between each other. So that's really how it happened between those, those companies. I didn't plan those. I just wanted to work for a company that was going to value me as an employee, um, invest in me. Cause you know, back then I keep saying back then, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. So back then companies paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of the training, you know, they, you would spend four months on a training program, rotational programs, and you don't really find that much anymore. So as I gained that from companies, I, it made me better. So it just happened to be those companies, but I didn't seek those companies out. You mentioned uh, changing over to communications. What was the biggest uh, thing that stood out to you when you uh, took that major on? that you didn't necessarily know about communications prior to? Um, I think with communications for me, one of the two top learnings was that the message sent is rarely the message received. You know, that's one of those key, you know, um, 
lessons that you learn in, in communications. And it, normally it starts in a classroom and the teacher will whisper a secret and you whisper it and it gets to the end of the class and it's not what you initially said. And we had to learn in communications. Every, even though you think you're saying something, people have filters. They have, um, you know, filters from education, educational filters, filters from their ethnicity, filters from trauma in their childhood. And they will hear things very differently. Even on this podcast, the fact that I said tobacco or Philip Morris, someone who may have had a relative die of lung cancer, it triggered something and they kind of heard me a little differently. So knowing that, I think it's a, it's a nuance, but it's a beautiful thing in communication and it should make you work that much harder every time you have to say something to someone that the message sent is rarely the message received. And the second lesson I really learned in communication, we all learn that, you have two ears and one mouth. It's really about listening a lot more than, than speaking. Um, you know, I used to get feedback early in my career. My bosses used to say, you know, you don't really say much, but you always know what's going on. I said, well, I can learn more by listening. I'm trying to, you know, absorb all the information around me. If I have something to say, I'll say it. Um, so to me, those are kind of the two big takeaways from being a communications major that, you know, are still relevant to this day. You mentioned earlier, uh, one of the chapters in your book is about, uh, or at least you, you may, I'm not sure if it made the book, you can let me know, the uh, choosing between uh, like a, a premium friend or choosing between your friends. How, is listening, to take the, the communication side, is listening, uh, having that skill set, does that help you kind of choose who you want around you more often than not? Uh, building your circle and building your, your business relationships? Um, I, I think so. Um, the chapter did make the book okay. and the chapter's called Well Versus Premium. And I, I basically start the chapter kind of talking about uh, the concept of happy hour. You know, people rush to a happy hour for these discounted drinks and discounted appetizers. And I said, well, why are the drinks discounted? Most times they're the well drinks and they're called well drinks because, <clears throat> excuse me, because they're down in the well of the bar. You normally don't see those drinks, right? They're down there. Um, most well drinks are processed differently than premium drinks. That's why they're cheaper by the bottle. Um, you can get the same outcome if you want a little buzz or you want a nice cocktail. You can, that happens, but sometimes um, you pay for it very differently. You know, it's about quality. Most premium drinks are distilled for a longer amount of time. They have uh, more natural ingredients and less preservatives than some of the well drinks. So we have, we have the same concept with our friends. You know, if it's a Friday night and I want to go out, I say, you know, I want to have a really good time. I want to like laugh and dance and da 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 I choose a certain friend. You know, not saying that friend is any less important or valuable than the other, but there, you have your well friends, the ones for that quick moment you want to have and, you know, in and out. And then you have your premium friends. I want to talk to you about this business idea I have. Hey, let me run this business plan by you. Um, and it's that same concept. And at the end of the chapter, I pose the question, the next time you want to drink or the next time you want to hang out with somebody, who will you consume? Because we all have those friends and they fall in those different buckets. So, you know, that's what that, that's what that chapter was really about. You know, I'm more of a premium um, person when it comes to what I choose to put into my body, you know, um, you know, when I was in college, it may have been different, but now I have the opportunity to, to, you know, maybe afford a higher end versus something that's well. So. When you published this book and I, I'm, I'm very curious, I'm also uh, sitting down writing a book as well. I, I came across this article that said that a uh, put it, publishing your own book is like, the new version of a PhD. And what they were saying with that is um, once you put out a book, people view you differently. They treat you differently. Um, have you seen any evidence uh, of this being true as far as you publishing your book and the way people interact with you? <clears throat> hmm. I think I've witnessed a difference for people who don't know me. You know, a lot of my friends 
have seen some of the things that I've, I've done, you know, prior to being an author, you know, I, I help associate produce a short film, you know, I was doing the stand-up comedy, doing some other things. So they already kind of knew me as a person who loved to kind of work on the next thing. But if someone didn't know me, uh, definitely the title author is something that sticks, you know, and for me, it was just great for my family, you know, for my kids to be like, when they're 30 or 35, this book will still be out there. I don't know if it'll probably be in digital form only, but they can say, ah, look, oh, this is, my mom wrote this book. So it was more about kind of a legacy for me, um, but definitely in certain circles, um, if someone says you're an author, a producer, and a comedian, it's kind of, when you're multi-hyphenated, uh, it does, you know, come with maybe some some different, you know, feedback and energy, but you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, kind of down to earth and, you know, it's, it's fine. And I was like, well, I, I can't remember the person who quoted this, but they said, uh, we all have one book in us. Very few of us have two, you know, so I think everybody has the capacity to write a book. Um, or if, or if a book is too daunting, you can write a, a LinkedIn, um, article. Like I said, I was going to do write something and shop it to medium.com. I mean, we are, I mean, if you ever have looked at Instagram and you've just scrolled and looked at the memes people create and the things that you laugh at, these are not comedians. These are everyday people who have an outlet for creativity. And I just laugh like, wow, how many of these people are not doing this, but they can quickly create a meme or say something funny or start something viral. And I think that's the beauty of, of the internet. So um, the title doesn't really matter to me as much as what you do to back it up. Now, you mentioned earlier that you, uh, your, your corporate job is at Showtime. Did I hear that correctly? You did. Now, I'm not sure if you're allowed to say this. What is your current favorite show on Showtime or of all time? What is your favorite show dealing with Showtime? All right. All right. Okay. Let me just consult with my lawyer here. Okay. <laughs> but that's the, okay. We're good. We're back. Okay, um, ooh, 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 ooh. My all-time favorite show, all-time would be Dexter. Okay. You know, uh, you know, he's kind of the anti-hero. And one of the things I love about it, he's the person, he kills people, but he only kills people who kill people. So, I mean, at the end of the day, if he kills people to kill people, is he like a killer? Right, right, right. I love the juxtaposition of that and just the anti-hero and Dexter was around for several seasons. Um, and and I, I, I love it. Uh, right now, uh, a couple of my favorite shows, we have a show Black Monday mm-hmm. with the Cheadle, um, Gina Hall, which is really funny. Um, and I also love, you know, Homeland, you know, Homeland has been around for, for you know, several years and you're just you think you're tired of that show I mean it comes up with an amazing concept and I'm not in the group that writes the stories so I don't know anything I play with my friends sometimes like you know I know what's gonna happen but I I don't know what's gonna happen right but you know that's just a testament to just investing the concept and an idea uh so those are kind of my two favorite you know shows right now well Dexter is off the air but Homeland right now is one of my favorite shows and then Black Monday it's currently on I've watched all three of those um yes I love I love Dexter. I think it's a really great binge watch show. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much like when it was on and I had to wait a whole week. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I-, I watched it once it was kind of towards the end, so I could watch four in a row and-, and really get into it. I did watch the first season of Black Monday. I, I really enjoyed uh, that. Homeland, woo! Homeland's that show. Because it, it, I don't, I know, I think part of it was actually a film where I'm at. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I think, it was. I think a lot correct. of it was filmed in Charlotte. You're correct. Yeah, yeah so I, I definitely have enjoyed Homeland. So let's take it away from Showtime for one second. What are you, what is one of your favorite shows of all time not on Showtime? Movie or documentary or just like a series? I'm open to anything. Those are three big, like, silos um, of all time. This is funny. 
So I have to go with theatricals first. I'd have to say I have two favorite movies of all time. One is uh, uh, it's with Diana Ross and Billy D. Williams, Mahogany. Okay. Uh, it's 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 old. It's out there. If you haven't seen it, I forgive you, but please see it. Uh, to talk about just really great acting. You know, I really enjoy older movies when they didn't have a lot of the, you know, the special effects and all that. Everything leaned and was heavy on your acting ability. Um, so I loved, you know, Mahogany. I have to say maybe for a series, my favorite series of all time. Uh, I'm a really kind of weird sci-fi person. So I love like the X-Files. Mm-hmm. You know, the X-Files with Mulder and Scully. Right. You know, that, that hasn't been out in forever. But I, I truly enjoyed that. And uh, you know, don't ask me my favorite comedian because you can't ask a comic their favorite comedian. It's like it was a, coming up. It was coming up. Yeah. Okay. A certain way, but I can't choose one. Okay. How about this? Now that you are officially an author, do you have a favorite book of all time other than your own? Hmm. Okay. And now this why? is. See, do I have? I don't think I have it in here. No. My favorite book is uh, named after me. So, okay. Look, shameless plug, I'm coming up here. Think like a bartender. It says L.D. Morrow. Now, L.D. are my initials. Uh, my first name is Lolita. And uh, when I was a kid, you know, my mom used to say, now there's a book named after you, but I don't want you to read it until you're 18. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? So clearly at 13, I had to get this book. So, you know, Lolita is a a, a novel that was written back in like 74, 73. The uh, the author, Vladimir, I think, Nobokov. And it's a book that, well, the synopsis of it, it's a book about this 12-year-old. Anyway, this 12-year-old girl who kind of took her mother's boyfriend. It was, it's really dark and weird. Okay. The United States tried to do iterations of the movie Lolita. Those of you who are on the East coast, you may have uh, been familiar with the long Island Lolita. That was the Amy Fisher story about the young girl with all got. So, you know, not really sure where my mom's headspace was at. With... <laughs> however, right. however, when I read the book, it was a really well written book. And when you write something of that type of content, a content that is very uncomfortable for people to read, there's a certain way that you can deliver it. And I think the author did an amazing job at, at creating imagery and, the, and, and just the scenery of the book. And, and no matter what movie you've watched named Lolita, there's nothing like that book. And it just happens to be my name. But that is you know, one of my favorite books, followed by any Stephen King. I love Tommy Knockers. I love, I'm talking the books, not the movie, Tommy Knockers. Uh, Carrie, um, Christine, those books. I mean, when you're talking about horror, it has to take you and escape, you know, because most movies and books are about escaping. And I find with Stephen King books, I can always get outside of myself and find myself exactly where he's describing um, that moment in the book. Now, I don't know if you're allowed to speak on this. If you can't, just say I'm not allowed to. But I saw Stephen King. Put, uh, he was heavily involved in the show The Outsider. And I wanted to know if you had a chance to to check that out. I know you're talking about the books, but mm-hmm. I, I, I saw him do a lot of the uh, behind-the-scenes interviews about The Outsider. Have you had a chance to watch that? Um, I don't think I have, but I do remember him being in the press about that. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm more of the kind of the original, you know, Stephen King's now, you know, it, which was the, about the clown. Yes. That had a, a couple of movie iterations. I saw the, the latest one that came out in the theaters. I saw the, the one that came out about 10 years ago. Uh, but I kind of like some of his older works, you know, okay. mystery, all the, all of that stuff. So I'm a little old school with it. So anything that he's done recently, um, you know, not too much. I think he did Dr. Uh, Doctor Sleep. Mm. So Dr. Sleep was uh, coming off of The Shining. So The Shining was a, you know, a movie. And Dr. Sleep was about the little boy in the movie who grew up and, you know, started to still have these issues. And I know Stephen King was heavily involved in that. And that was actually great as well. 
Now, as we're recording this episode, I don't think we would be doing it doing us any justice if we didn't at least touch on this. There's this uh, coronavirus situation going on. A lot of people are locked down in their home. They can't leave. Um, how does coronavirus uh, impact you uh, currently? Um, are, are you in the uh, tri-state area? Yes, I'm in the tri-state area. Um, I'm in New Jersey and Fort Lee. Uh, but I live, I mean, but I work in New York. Our offices are right in the heart of Midtown. So we have been kind of working from home for the last couple of weeks and watching everything that's been happening, especially here in the tri-state area. It's such a, I think it's more of a nucleus because of the width of all three areas. You know, I'm originally from Texas and in Texas, you can drive 10 miles and still be in Houston. Here, I drive 10 miles, I'm in New York, and now I'm in the Bronx. So it's a very tight area. So um, everything that's happening in New York City in terms of the reported cases, the reported deaths, um, affects us here in New Jersey as well as it affects those of us who live in Connecticut. So um, it's definitely something that, you know, my family and I are taking, you know, day to day. Uh, I've become the, I'm the gym teacher, I'm the art teacher. Uh, I'm also the counselor. I have two boys. I'm the counselor because um, we're homeschooling now. Right, right. But I think most people of any sane mind understand it's important for us to shelter in place and just kind of let this wave, you know, and I think they call it a wave because it does come to a crest. I mean, it's there are going to be more and more people who don't know, who find out they may have it, but we're still sheltering in place. And then as it goes down, we'll be able to, to flatten, but it's a good time for content creators, for authors. You know, I think, I think I heard Audible is giving my book away for free. I think I, you know, <laughs> so get it for free on Audible. Okay. <laughs> you know, okay. but it's, it's a great opportunity for people. Yeah, let's get it. It gives, it, it's a great opportunity for people to read more, have family game nights and just kind of reset. I think I heard the canals in Venice are clear. They can hmm. see, the bottom of the canals now they're saying dolphins are returning so if you had to find some sort of silver lining to this horrible horrible you know pandemic it's that the earth is healing i'm thinking about the number of cars that are not on the roads just in this tri-state area what that's done to the air quality you know so i mean you have to try to find some silver lining in this and it's not over but that is you know something that's definitely important and i I know people who have been, you know, diagnosed with the virus and, and they're doing well, you know, uh, but I think this is going to show the resiliency of our, our country. I know we talk a lot about it, but I mean, we are, we are a strong country and every day that goes by, I know that we're getting closer to a vaccine. We're getting closer to giving medications that don't work and help people not really suffer through it the entire amount of time um, that the virus takes over the body. So um, it's a great time for the mind to rest and reset outside of the stress of wondering what's going to happen. Um, and I think it's a great time for the planet just to be able to heal a bit while we're not, you know, messing up the, you know, the, our carbon footprint. Yeah, you mentioned uh, no cars being on the road. And I think I saw a picture yesterday of uh, Times Square, where it was completely a ghost. It was ghost town. It was, there was nobody out. Well, there was one bus driving um, through. There was a bus mm-hmm. and somebody on a bike. And other than that, it was all these flashing lights, but nobody out there. And I said, wow, ain't this something? Times Square has nobody out there at all. Never seen it before. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it reminded me a lot of I Am Legend, you know, mm-hmm. the movie. Exactly. Where he was, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a scary thing to see, but I have to keep reminding myself of why I'm seeing it. People are listening. Right. People are paying attention and, and staying in their homes. So, you know, New York, which is normally bustling, and we will be bustling again. I mean, this is not the beginning of the end of days. And, you know, we're going to get through this. And the bars, you know, and that's one thing, even with like a bartender, you know, I have a, a podcast as well. And right now I'm talking to bartenders, like, what are you doing? You're unemployed. How are you, you know, 
providing for your family? What is it doing to a lot of the restaurants who unfortunately won't be able to exist simply by having takeout and pickup orders? That's only about 25% of their business when all the tables used to be full. So it's definitely a hit on the the hospitality industry specifically and, and even bartenders who, you know, this was, this was their job. And um, I think we have to always keep them in mind. I know the, I think it's the, the bartending uh, association. There are a couple of groups that are investing money. I know Jameson has invested money. Diageo has into like bartenders hoping to kind of help those who are displaced from their jobs during this time. So, um, you know, those who actually go out to bars, you know, Instead of thinking like a bartender, you know, think of your bartender. And, you know, if you had a relationship with them, reach out to them and, and see how they're doing. Because bartenders, hosts, hostesses, servers, cooks, all of these individuals are, are, are impacted as well as a lot of us. Now, you mentioned your podcast. Uh, what is the name of your podcast for those who may be interested in listening in? Yeah, the podcast is called Think Like a Bartender. So it's of the same name, and I created it as an extension to the book as a way for me to interview actual bartenders. So we, we have a couple of cocktails. We get them on the other side of the bar, let them relax, and we talk about a chapter in my book. So, for example, um, I just had a, a, an interview that will be posted uh, later this week, and it was on the chapter called Liquid Courage. And that chapter really talked about the concept of liquid courage, when people take a shot or they have a drink to have that hard conversation, does the alcohol really help you have that conversation or is it more kind of in your, in your mind and how bartenders deal with that and how they deal with it in their personal lives. So it's a, it's a real fun podcast. It's funny because you never get the bartender sitting down drinking, you know, talking about situations they've experienced before in their career and how it relates to their real life. All right, LD, I need, your, I need your help with something. All right. I'm walking into your bar, and I'm not really big on drinking, but I like to drink occasionally. How could you help me pick out a drink? What questions would you ask? Walk me through that, that step, uh, those steps, and let's see if we can uh, find a drink that I can choose. Okay. This sounds like a role play. Let's do it. All right, so you're coming into my bar. I'm going to put the napkin down. Okay. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you doing? I'm doing good on this Wednesday. Uh, what can I get you? Honestly, I've, I've never ordered a drink before. Uh, I want something that's, that is it's going to hit the spot, but I don't want to be drunk or anything. Okay. So you're more about quality versus quantity. Yes. Okay. Well, since we are in the tri-state area, can I make you my signature Manhattan? Is with a couple ounces of bourbon, a little bit of sweet vermouth, a couple of orange bitters, and one beautiful cube of ice. It's beautiful. It'll get you right there, and you won't have to have six of them to get where you want to be. I'll try it, definitely. <laughs> that, that, was right. that, was, that was simple. That was very simple. Hey, now, there you go. Now, is that going to be a very strong flavor? Is that going to be bitter in any way? No. I mean, the beautiful thing about a Manhattan, the, when you think about bourbon, if you don't drink, mm -hmm. it sounds like it's one of those, I'm growing hair on my chest, mm -hmm. you know, drinks. And bourbon is. However, when you add something like a sweet vermouth, which is very sweet and kind of complicated, uh -huh. you know, the bitters kind of bring out a lot of the fragrance and the aromatics of it. You know, and then when I rub the glass with like an orange peel, you really start to smell that before you drink it. And then I put those really beautiful cherries in there. So in the end, it's like a little treat for you. It's, it's really like a whole, it's a moment. You know, it's not just a drink in a glass, you know. So I think a bartender's job is to really quickly assess people. And sometimes you don't know. Sometimes people say, just make me something. And, you know, you just, you try to figure people out. But Light versus dark is, is something that's pretty big because some people don't like dark, mm -hmm. like whiskeys and cognacs and, you know, and bourbons. And some people are more tequilas and vodkas. And there's tons, tons of cocktails um, that are made with it. And the misconception is just because it's a cocktail, it doesn't have to be liquor forward. You know, it could be something beautiful with 
pineapple juice or, you know, or like a, a lychee fruit or something else that's really just kind of fun. It's just a little bit, you know, there's, there's such a spectrum of, of drinkers out there and you have about, I say 10 to 15 seconds to figure it out. You know, I like in bartending to, when you're driving in a car and you look at a billboard, I'm business. We know we put a billboard up. We know that person has about, I don't know, three seconds to look at it. So it has to be quick to the point, say what you need and let you take the message away. So you have to move really quick as a, as a, as a bartender, or even as a server, if someone says, I don't know what to eat. What are your specials? Well, I don't like this. You have to know what to suggest and kind of to keep it moving because you have other tables to get to. Now, how, how do those tips usually look? Uh, is it, um, what is, is it a, a, an amount that makes you say, okay, I really, I really am getting a lot of value out of this or some people don't tip at all, or is it all over the place? Um, I think by now most people can tip adequately. Uh, that's another chapter in my book. It's called, um, it's actually called LGBT. That's the title of the chapter okay. LGBT, but that stands for let's get better at tipping. Okay. And, talk about the concept of tipping, you know, back in the day, um, you know, people would tip prior to service. So they would actually, you know, if you think about the old horse and buggy day, the guy comes up on a horse, he gets off his horse, he flings a little shiny coin to the kid to watch his horse. He tipped him before the service. Right. Uh, And actually tip had a different acronym. It was TIP. It used to be TEP, which stood for to ensure performance. So a tip was something that you gave prior to service to ensure performance. Now, there's a lot of different historical definitions of tips. You know, some say tips started um, many years ago when people would bring slaves on to work, you know, because it was cheap labor and tips were a way for them to really make money. So I think, I think the terminology of tip has changed over the years, but in my book, I really talk about to ensure performance. You know, how do you tip your friends in your life? Tipping may be sending that text. Hey, I'm just checking on you. How's everything going? Just going that extra mile. Um, I think from a bartender's perspective, on the East Coast, most people do the standard 20%. They know it's the standard 20%. If you do 15, it's fine. And even if you do 10, I mean, no one's going to shrug at that because you give what you can. Um, but I think it's really about just appreciating the service. If someone told me, thank you so much, you gave me such great drinks and I will definitely be back. And I say, thank you. And they tip me 10%. Maybe that's what they had, but I just got a customer who's going to tell someone else and they're going to come back. So uh, it's about ensuring performance. So whether you tip prior to service or after service, I think um, either way, it's, it's, it's good for the person and good for the industry. And what's the biggest tip you've ever had monetarily? I mean, probably a hundred dollars. I think. That's nice. That's a nice tip. Was uh, a nice tip back then, and I think it was a gentleman who uh, he was looking for something to drink. Uh, He said, "I like whiskey," but he wasn't that knowledgeable, and he said something like, "I." I, you know, I like, a, I like whiskey because whiskey is sweet. And I kind of thought, no, it's not. And they said, yeah, let me get, um, let me get Makers or, or no, he said uh, Jack or something. I said, well, you know, there's, there's like Scotch whiskeys and then there's like bourbon and then there's Irish, you know, Irish whiskeys and it's all depending on how it's aged. And he didn't know that. And I said, well, how about a, a Jameson? I said, Jameson is a, it's an Irish whiskey. It's kind of a little bit on the sweeter end. I think you'll appreciate that more than something that's a little more stronger and he'd never heard of it and he said you know thank you why did you educated me and you walked me through all this I felt like I was in Ireland and I think that's why he gave me the the tip because he thought you know not only did he walk away with what he asked for which was the drink but he walked away with knowledge and you know something that he could share with someone else so well LD you definitely have shared your knowledge with us today (laughs) you dropped the wisdom on us uh, I'm, I'm sending you a hundred dollar tip, uh, with, with a virtual hug <laughs> and I really appreciate, um, you sitting down and talking to us today on the black equity podcast. How can people, uh, who are interested in either working with you, reading your book, how can people reach out to you and, and find, 
uh, find find your book and, and find you. Yeah. Um, so the book it's coming back up slowly. Think like a bartender. Um, right now, I'm fortunate for a self-published book to have distribution. Um, you can find the book at Barnes and Noble. It's at Walmart. It's at Target. Um, it's on Amazon, which is amazing. Um, I also recorded the audiobook. If you want the audiobook, that's available on audible.com as well. So it's an ebook, it's in paperback, and it's an audiobook. Um, on Instagram, you can find us at Think Like a Bartender. On Facebook, we have a page, Think Like a Bartender. And also the podcast, it's available on Spotify, Anchor, iTunes, and it's also called Think Like a Bartender as well. Um, and we have a website, www.thinklikeabartender.com. And a really funny thing, I actually created a book trailer. You know how movies have trailers? Yeah. I have a book trailer. Uh, you can find that on the website. Because I just thought that'd be really funny just to have a quick, like, two-minute actual trailer about the book. Uh, so that's something as well you can take a look at. So um, right now, in terms of working with me, I've been fortunate enough that the book has created a lot of avenues where I've done some um, keynote speeches at some major like corporations. Um, I think once they realize the book is not really about bartending, but it, it, it crosses parallels of the corporate America, your personal life, self-help, comedy, and recipes. I think all of that together, um, and then also with my ability being a stand-up comedian and being able to kind of deliver it in a light and funny way, um, has actually helped broaden the book's distribution. Um, I've done a lot of moments at restaurants where I'll go into a restaurant and like 10 minutes, I'll talk to everyone about it. Maybe I'll make a cocktail, talk about the book and sell the book. Uh, so it's, it's started to, and that's what you want from your business. Um, you want it to have brand extensions. So I wrote this as a book, but the book has allowed me to have extensions now as a, a public speaker I have a podcast. I'm being interviewed. Uh, I'm thinking of creating think like a bartender kind of mocktail kits, you know, you know, so the, and that that's what you want in, in terms of a business, because I wasn't planning to get all my money back that I invested into this book from the book sales. But what I did expect is for it to open up avenues of conversation for me where I could talk to people and, you know, create my next brand. If this book gets me sitting next to the ladies on The View, because they need a different perspective, then this book was a true, you know, avenue and catalyst for that. So, you know, a lot of times the means to an end is not what you invest in. It's the other things that, um, that it stretches out for you. So, but those are the ways you can find me. If you just Google think like a bartender, you'll find everything that you need. Now you said that you're not going to tell me what your favorite uh, comedian is, which I understand. I get it. Can I just you... said you had to word it differently. Well, I'll say it. Well, let me see if this helps. Who was the one of the first comedians you saw that made you say, you know what, I want to be a comedian? Is there anyone that stands out uh, from that perspective? Carol Burnett. You know, Carol Burnett, Carol Burnett yeah, she was, um, she had a, a variety show, the Carol Burnett Show. Mm -hmm. She was one of those uh, great female comedians back in the day, kind of close to like Betty White, like when, you know, there weren't a lot of female comedians and she had a show of her own name. And I thought it was so amazing. And to this day, if you Google Carol Burnett and watch some of her skits, they are hilarious. So, you know, my favorite, I'll say Carol Burnett, Betty White. I love Wanda Sykes. Um, I love Ellen DeGeneres because it's about their delivery. You know, those comedians, it's almost as if they don't even care if you laugh, they're just talking. And they don't wait for that laugh. Ellen's just talking and you just happen to laugh at her. You know, and right. I think that's a comfortable place. You know, I, I love all the, I love all comedians. I have a respect for them because there's a certain self-deprecation with comedy that it's, it's tough. It's a hard job to live and breathe by people's reaction every day. Um, and so I give kudos to everyone in that industry. But those are some of um, the comedians that kind of stand out to me, you know, from when I was really trying to learn about the art and the craft of comedy. LD Morrill, thank you so much for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. Uh, we definitely appreciate you coming on. You have an open door to come back anytime. 
to continue a conversation about your book, about business, about anything you have going on, talk about culture, what's happening in black culture at any time. We definitely appreciate you coming on today and uh, we look forward to talking to you in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. And I want to say hello to the entire Black Equity Podcast family. Um, and hopefully I will come back and maybe I'll have another book. Definitely. I look forward to it. Maybe we can promote both of our books together. I can do, I can do that too. See? Already. Partnership. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much. We are truly grateful for today's guest. If you are interested in becoming an approved Black Equity Strategic Partner with this company or one in the past, simply send us an interest inquiry to the following email, djm at djmotri.com. Once again, djm at djmotri.com. Let us know your name, your company, your services, and which guests you are interested in partnering with. As an approved partner, you will have exclusive access to our network and have first opportunity at future partnerships as well. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast.